This is an Urbanarium City Talk. And this is Should I Stay or Should I Go? A show about Metro Vancouver's housing crisis. I'm Jenny Tan, just a regular person trying to make it in Metro Vancouver. On the podcast, I work out if I should stay living in my camping trailer or go somewhere else where I can afford to live. We acknowledge that Metro Vancouver is the unsurrendered traditional territory of many First Nations, including 10 local nations. The modern housing crisis has its roots in the colonization of Metro Vancouver and continues to displace Indigenous peoples. Hey, good to hang out with you on the podcast again. Welcome to our bonus episode. Today on the show, we're chatting with the BC Minister responsible for housing, David Eby. Dave's also the Attorney General of BC and the MLA of Vancouver Point Grey, which means he used to be my MLA when I lived in the trailer. Dave and I talk about the root causes of the housing crisis, and if there's anyone who can change the course of housing in BC, it's Dave. So I'm pretty pumped to talk to him. Alright, here we go. Minister David Eby, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Do you prefer Dave or David? Uh, you know what? Uh, whatever you like to call me, I uh, David, I am at work and generally uh, friends and family call me Dave. Okay, I'll just pretend that we're friends and I'll start by calling you Dave. Here we go. We'll be friends <laughs> by the end for sure. Perfect. Dave, so I used to be a constituent uh, when I was living out in my trailer in West Point Grey. Yes, you were one of my more famous constituents. Well, more famous, I'll dispute, but I hope to be one of your more cheerful constituents. That's always fun. Um, but I was no, definitely not cheerful when I was evicted from my trailer. Um, so I no longer live in West Point Grey. I live in Maple Ridge. Um, I'm very happy there, but I wasn't happy about being evicted. And the other thing, the reason why I was so excited to talk to you is because I think I'll have all these questions for you. But ultimately, you know, I'm looking for a little bit of hope. So we had this podcast series where we talked to a whole bunch of people, developers, journalists, and, you know, at the end of it, I was actually left feeling more hopeless about the housing crisis mm. and about my prospects and the prospects of other people I know of staying in Metro Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no pressure, but if I feel a little more hopeful or we can give a li our listeners a little more hope after this conversation. Okay, let's see what we can know, do. That'd be great. Okay. Um, Dave, the first question we ask everyone, uh, what kind of home do you live in? So my family lives in a townhome. Uh, we live out uh, close to uh, UBC and uh, we're very fortunate uh, to be here. Uh, we've been renters uh, for a long time and we recently bought uh, when my wife uh, finished her family practice residency. So she's a doctor. And so it's... Uh, I'm happy to answer the question, but I uh, often find it's not a great uh, comparison for the experiences of most British Columbians, uh, our family's housing experience. Fair enough. Um, Dave, so maybe the first big question, I mean, what do you think is causing the housing crisis? So uh, I think it, I've described it as a wicked problem and a wicked problem is one that has so many different pieces to it. Uh, you pull on one lever and it causes a problem somewhere else uh, and there's no immediate and easy solution. Um, so I'll do my best uh, to distill the problem down as I understand it. There are a couple of, uh, couple of significant pieces to this. The first is um, 
the federal government used to build uh, literally thousands of units of housing uh, every year, affordable housing. And uh, that role was vital. Uh, it's much of the affordable housing stock that people are living in now, co-ops, uh, the West End, all those towers, the rental towers that people live in, which are increasingly less affordable. But for a long time after that funding stopped in the 90s, people said, you know, there, there will be a day of reckoning. We can live on the housing stock that was built for a while, but at some point, uh, we're not going to be able to live on that. And uh, that day has come. Uh, so much of that housing stock is old. Uh, some of it needs to be rebuilt. Uh, and certainly population has grown quite remarkably since that point. Which brings me to my second point. Uh, British Columbia is in a massive population boom. 100,000 people moved to our province last year. That was a 60-year high. Uh, and a remarkable uh, growth of people moving from other provinces, primarily Alberta and Ontario, but also internationally to British Columbia. And we're just not building housing at the rate that responds to that kind of in-migration. Then the third piece is the scarcity of the lack of federal and provincial involvement in building housing combined with the population increase means that housing is now a lucrative investment uh, at a large scale and at a small scale. So from individual investors, uh, somebody inherits some money and buys a place uh, to large scale, the REITs, uh, they're called the Real Estate Investment Trusts, the financialization of housing. This scarcity is driving people to put money into housing, especially the uncertainty in stock markets and more traditional investments to put money into housing, which is having an inflationary impact. Low interest rates are a factor for sure in the increase in cost of housing, but to my mind, it is actually a uh, uh, more driven by uh, the scarcity of housing, unfortunately, and the uh, desire of people to uh, invest and make money from that scarcity. Um, and so those are the main reasons I would give. Uh, but of course, uh, there are all kinds of uh, competing factors like the uh, approval times of municipalities, of the province, of the federal government around new housing, uh, policies that facilitate certain kinds of housing and discourage other kinds of housing that are badly needed. Uh, on and on we could go. Thanks, Dave, for that. I appreciate that summary. I want to ask you about this piece that it has come up for me over the course of this podcast, which is that that lots of people like me, right, and lots of people who can't afford, have high rents, have high mortgages, struggling to pay with all that, who really want the housing prices to go down. And there are lots of people, both the, like the small and large investors you talked about, and also people who own homes who really don't want the house prices to go down. And I think when I say that, I think lots of people are like, oh, those people who just want to make money off of homes. Like, they're sure, they're those folks. And there are also folks, like I'm thinking about my friends, who, you know, scraped together down payment and bought, and now they have like a $2 million mortgage. And the house prices come down and they have to keep paying their mortgage. They're kind of screwed, right? So I'm curious, as a politician, how do you manage that tension of both wanting the house prices to go down and also not wanting the house prices to go down? Yeah, I think when you get down to it, a strong majority of British Columbians would like uh, house prices to come down and it would like more affordable housing. Um, and uh, it's just not a controversial Issue. So when I started working on housing uh, issues as a politician, significantly as the housing critic in opposition, um, you know, I'd come out and say, look, there's a lot of international money coming into our housing market. Um, it's driving up prices. And the government of the day said, you know, um, that's just the market at work. And if people don't like that, they can live in other parts of the province. And we, do, we, we need to protect home buyers' equity. 
that as a priority for government. And that uh, discussion has really shifted to recognizing that high housing prices have a massively corrosive effect on uh, the economic opportunities that are available in our province, intergenerational fairness, uh, even the environment as people live further and further away from their jobs. So um, I think that you have a strange consensus in the legislature that house prices are too darn high, and that includes rents. And so uh, it's, it's very true that there are people who will be uh, unhappy about that kind of talk. Um, but the reality is that uh, we need to address the issue. So I'm not sure if I think that is the answer to your question. But I, you know, when I think about, um, you know, people who think, well, you know, the good news is, uh, at least I've got some money in my home, I'll be able to, uh, to rely on. But I mean, you, you've got to live somewhere. And, uh, and so the question is, where are you going to move to, to be able to access that? Do you have to leave your neighborhood where all your social connections are, where all your friends and family are, uh, in order to be able to access that resource for your retirement or some other planning that you have? Um, and, uh, and I do absolutely have concern for people who are in very sig significant mortgages uh, for their housing. Um, and, uh, but if house prices come down, they're still going to be able to uh, sell and buy uh, a home, uh, even if they have uh, uh, some aspect of their mortgage that they're still carrying. So the reality is, uh, Jenny, I suspect that we're going to need to have a significant and continually expanded uh, role for government to build um, affordable housing for people, like uh, key worker programs in the UK, that kind of thing. And you'll see, and I'm sure we'll discuss some government policies that are moving us in that direction, uh, because uh, building housing where it's affordable for people to purchase and rent is at the end of the day, if the market is unable to do it, it's up to government. Thanks, Dave. And I appreciate that. And I just want to poke a little more into that. Because if we just put some numbers around that, you know, if, you know, I think about friends who bought a $2 million house, and then they're carrying, they have a mortgage of, you know, call it 1.5 million or something like that. And then say, if houses were to magically, ideally, you know, optimistically go down the point where say, that $2 million home is now a $500,000 home, that's like, 1.5 million that they now have to deal with somehow. And I'm just going to, so that's one piece. And then I look at the other piece, which is that our economy, to the best of my understanding, is really fueled by real estate. The last numbers I've seen is 20% of BC's GDP is real estate and another 9% is construction. And that's almost a third of our economy and nothing else comes close. So maybe if house prices come down, which would be great for a large segment of the population, but it does cause all these other problems. What would you say to that? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, you're talking on the order of a 75% price correction. In, in that kind of scenario, you're um, talking about uh, really widespread and significant economic impact that would be national uh, in character. It would have huge implications for uh, the federal government, uh, for provincial governments across Canada, as well as uh, banks, financial institutions, and everyday British Columbians. So that is a, a, a remarkable scenario that you're pitching that is profoundly unlikely. Which is, may not, yeah. I, I understand that. Profoundly I understand unlikely. it's profoundly unlikely. So maybe give me your vision of success and what percentage of price correction would you be aiming for? Yeah, no, but I, but I do want to address your question about the economy because I do think that uh, the constrained uh, real estate market, the lack of government participation for many decades in the housing market has created this uh, self-reinforcing model of economic development in especially 
the lower mainland, but um, but certainly in British Columbia, where uh, real estate uh, eats everything. And when I say that, I mean, you know, if you're thinking about locating a manufacturing firm or a tech firm or a biotech firm, you really have to grapple with, or if you're a researcher looking to, to work at SFU or UBC or UVic, you really have to factor housing costs into and the impact on the workforce or your own opportunities in your decision. And um, so we are attracting a lot of, uh, of economic development uh, from outside companies and uh, biotech and, and other opportunities, which is very exciting. But I know that housing is a profound limiting impact on a lot of the companies that are here and uh, work, the lack of workforce housing. And so that means that uh, if you can't expand your company because you can't find the workers because they can't afford the housing, then uh, it, it really limits the opportunities that are present for people. So house prices are going up. They're not finding the jobs in the sectors that they're looking for. Uh, and then they, uh, as you is the topic of your show, they can start to consider moving away. And so we either have the best and brightest going into development uh, because that's those are the best paying jobs. Those are the jobs that are available or uh, choosing to live somewhere else. And that's not a sustainable approach for the province. And so to my mind, uh, rather than you know just hoping and praying for some kind of vague, unspecified event that's going to wipe 20 or 30% off the housing market uh, or more, um, because it's not clear to me what's going to do that in, a, in an environment of scarcity and still relatively low interest rates, uh, government has a really important role to play to build the housing that people need and to facilitate the construction of that housing however possible. And so that's the opportunity that I see in front of us. Uh, and to make sure that that workforce, I, I, I tell you, I haven't thought of a better way to describe it. Workforce housing is a profoundly unsexy term, but it's housing for the people who make the province go. And, and it's the people who are making decisions about whether to stay or not. And that's the, that's the, and it's described as the missing middle and all these other sort of weird euphemisms. But I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. I don't think it would be a problem to shift in that direction. It would enhance the diversity of economic activity in the province. It would make our province stronger. Uh, and, uh, and the, the risk is always, um, uh, the sort of resortification of, of, uh, significant parts of our community. You get that Paris effect where, you know, downtown uh, and sort of the center is where all the rich people live. And then around the outsides, uh, everybody who has to work and help uh, make the city go creates profound inequality and, uh, and other uh, unrest, reasonable unrest issues and other concerns like that. So um, I really think for the health of our province, we need to be doing that. And I, I don't see it as one that would generate a problem, that kind of shift. Actually, I think the problem is where we're at right now. I want to ask you about the degree of price correction. Like, let's go back to that. So, you know, the house going from, to spell it out, like that, the house going from $2 million in Vancouver to $500,000 probably won't happen. But in your mind, what is possible? So what's possible in my mind is, is recognizing a couple of things. One is that we're land constrained. So we have the mountains and the ocean and the agricultural land reserve. As a matter of policy, our government will not be building on the agricultural land reserve. We, you know, we saw the droughts in California and the fires and the border being closed and everything else. Food security for our, our province is really important. And so is farming. And so uh, making sure that we're looking after the next generations, that we have that farmland, that's vitally important. So we've, we've got this constrained land. Uh, 
-hmm. We need to get more out of it. We need to have uh, more people uh, living in this area because we know that our population is growing. And to get there, we can't erect all these barriers that stop that from happening because that increases the cost of the properties that are already built. And so the length of time to get there and the number of units you can have on a site and the number of stories you can go in the air and so on are all, they all become pretty critical factors. And then also the role of government to to facilitate and support more affordable housing uh, through direct funding and through different programs like that. Sorry, Jenny, I cut you off. Well, actually, I think I was about to cut you off. Right. So I think where, I mean, I think I am looking for sort of like your concrete vision on that. I see that you painted a picture of the parameters and the constraints. But I think what I'm trying to paint a picture is like, not that you have a crystal ball. I don't need you to say like by 2030, we're going to get to this. But sort of like, what is realistic for folks, right? When I'm thinking and other folks are thinking, should I stay or should I go from this place? Like, is it reasonable to expect that one day with like, strong government policy, strong advocacy, all that good stuff. Like we, you know, I, you know, I would be able to afford a home or three of us put together would be able to afford a home or what's the degree of shift you see here? Yeah, I I 100% uh, believe that federal, provincial and municipal government policy uh, will ensure and can ensure and has to ensure uh, the availability of affordable housing for rent and purchase for Vancouverites like you. Uh, I think it's a matter of generational fairness. Metro Vancouverites, because now I live in Maple Ridge. (laughs) Metro Vancouverites like you. And uh, I think, um, you know, I think the opportunity that's in front of us is uh, is facilitated by things like Bill 16 that just passed the legislature. So here's a new bill that if you can imagine, uh, the transit authority was only ever able to buy the land that was the exact footprint of the station and was not allowed to hold the land near the stations. They had to sell anything that they weren't using. And so this bill allows them to buy property uh, next to the station for the development of affordable housing close to transit. And, you know, it, it seems like a no brainer, but it hasn't been done. And so these are the basic things that we're doing, the building blocks that we're putting in place for the public ownership of the land that's benefiting from the investment in transit so that we can build affordable housing on it. So the people most likely to use the transit will be living near the transit station. And uh, and we can um, uh, sort of uh, discuss why approaches like this were abandoned in the 90s. But um, but the what you're seeing now is at the federal and provincial level, at least, and at many municipal levels, a rebuilding of interest in government being involved in this way. Dave, I want to talk about cities. So, you know, I read a couple of, the, of articles of, that you've been talking, interviews you've given about how you've really not been satisfied with the speed at which cities approve housing. And, you know, and you've talked about getting tough with cities. Can you spell out for us what that looks like? Okay. So across the province, in fast-growing regions, there's a very consistent problem, which is uh, the people who live in established neighborhoods um, are not, uh, as a general rule, not in every case, but generally, not really excited about adding a significant number of new neighbors. That could be in townhomes, duplexes, uh, rental buildings, uh, towers, you name it, anything other than single-family homes. And so there's a real lack of political will at the municipal level, especially as you get closer to elections, to approve those kinds of developments that add more people. And then 
within municipalities, there's a competing array of policies, everything from parks, environmentally friendly, shadows, uh, parking, uh, you name it, they all overlap and intersect and restrict the number of units that can be built. And so when you put these things together, you have a concerted group in the local community that is opposed to the site. You have uh, internal processes that are very lengthy, hard to understand, and are subject to interpretation at the staff level. And uh, when you put it together, it's really hard to build housing. And so really big and desperately needed rental housing developments across the province are getting turned down or getting trimmed down. You want 15 stories, we'll give you 10. You want triplexes, we'll give you duplexes. And it's just death by a thousand cuts when you're talking about population growth and the desperate need for housing. And I'm watching interest rates rise. We're in a perfect time right now to build rental housing. Interest rates are low. Um, and uh, the, there's huge demand for rental housing. The, the, lots of uh, private uh, funds of money, like insurance companies have these funds of money that they want and need to invest in rental housing to build market rental housing, which is something we desperately need. And they can't get through the approvals processes. And I'm watching interest rates go up. I'm watching labor costs go up. I'm watching product costs go up, which will all result in higher rents when the buildings are finally open. And I just, it, it's making me crazy, Jenny. And I just, like, I, government will do, will do all the parts where the market won't step up. But where the market is willing to do it, where the private sector is willing to build this housing, to have municipalities blocking it from going ahead is just making me totally crazy. So I'm trying my best to communicate the urgency of around population growth, the urgency. Some municipalities are responding to the call, which I'm really glad about, and others are completely indifferent, which drives me nuts. Tell me more about this making you crazy. Like, what does that mean? And then like, what? so what kind of steps, like, what are you willing to do to get that message across to municipalities. I'm sure you're calling up folks, like you call up mayors across the province and maybe they're like, okay, thanks for the call day, but not happening. And then what? Yeah, so I, I am literally writing letters and calling mayors and councils to ask them to approve housing. And primarily this is housing where BC Housing has an investment. So even it, it's no protection at all. Uh, that BC housing, the gov- provincial government is investing in affordable housing, that that housing is going to be approved. Um, and so I find myself lobbying local governments to get it approved. Uh, they go through lengthy approvals processes that are a year or more uh, in development. We have literally 1,500 uh, units in the queue in Vancouver for uh, deeply affordable housing uh, that we're going through various approvals processes on. Um, and so, you know, it, it takes a long time and it, it's not a problem that it, anymore where people are patient and they shouldn't be patient anymore. And so uh, I'll accept some responsibility. Certainly provincial government has some approvals processes that we're working on to expedite, especially around contaminated sites and, uh, and archaeology and these kinds of things where you need a provincial permit. But we acknowledge that there's an issue and we're working on it. The thing that makes me crazy is when the municipalities come and say, there's no problem. We're approving uh, more than enough housing uh, for our population growth when it's so patently obvious that that's not true. So get specific for me. So what tools will you then use if the lobbying, the advocacy, if they're calling people out doesn't work? What next? Well, uh, I'm really interested in working with the municipalities with my uh, colleague, Nathan Cullen, who's the Minister for Municipal Affairs, to come to solutions on this because the status quo is not working. Uh, The urban mayors recently wrote a letter, an open letter to me and to government saying, please give us targets 
uh, for the number of housing units to develop for population growth and make them give them teeth, make them binding on us, uh, tie funding to them, uh, tie requirements uh, to that, hitting those targets, and we'll achieve those targets. And I think that that, that approach has a lot to recommend it. Um, but any approach that the provincial government is going to take is going to involve engagement with uh, those local governments to make sure it's going to work in California, Washington State, New Zealand, uh, lots of places around the world. Uh, there have been different approaches uh, to compel local governments to uh, to step up, um, and uh, and I'm hopeful that we won't need to uh, uh, be so unilateral in the approach that we'll be able to be more cooperative. There are some municipalities, a handful, that are like get stuffed. But uh, but the majority, I think, are understanding of the problem and and uh, wanting to work with us to address it. So we'll we'll find a way that uh, works for everybody. Dave, I want to pivot a little bit, and I want to talk about investment, S- investment in treating BOX stage like like the new gold rush. So you know, I think there's a lot of consensus in this province about we don't like. F- for foreigners, people who don't live here, people who have no intention of living here, not immigrate, immigrants, all that kind of stuff from coming and buying homes. I think a lot of people don't like that. But I think there's this other piece here, which is local investors. You alluded to this earlier in the conversation, which is like people inherited a bunch of some money and are buying homes a bit. Because it makes financial sense. It makes, we had Heather Tremaine on this show, and she told us that in the North American financial system, it makes a lot of sense because people bank on real estate for their retirement. So in your mind, your government has put in measures to, to limit foreign investment in real estate. Is there a move that you're considering of limiting local investment? Yeah, I, uh, great question. So we do have the foreign buyer tax that uh, is a tax that applies at the point of purchase to, uh, to people who are not uh, Canadian citizens or BC resident. And so that is very squarely, we inherited it from the previous government, we increased that tax rate. But when we put in a speculation tax, we took a different approach. And the approach was to say, look, it doesn't, we don't, it doesn't matter where you live. The effect of what you're doing is the same, whether you're a British Columbian or a Canadian or an international investor, when you buy a home and leave it vacant, uh, and you're not, uh, the, the definition um, uh, that we used was whether or not the place was rented. If it's rented, then you don't have to pay the tax. It's as simple as that. So I think there's that, that other piece too of not just people who buy homes and leave them vacant, but people who become like landlords, right? Of multiple homes, right? These are, I'm not talking about real estate investment trusts. I'm talking about like regular mom and pop folks who buy a home, buy two homes and then rent them out. Yeah. So uh, a couple of pieces to that. One is um, in a, a, any port in a storm is the saying, right? Where you know people are desperate for rental housing, and uh, if someone's going to buy a condo and rent it out, um, then that can be a positive thing for the person who rents it out. Uh, the vast majority of people live in rent. Vast majority of renters live in housing like this, where it's rented out by a private owner. It's not purpose-built rental housing. Uh, it's not ideal. And the reason why I say it's not ideal is that um, it's much more precarious than purpose-built rental housing. When you live in a building that was built to be a rental housing building, uh, you have much more security of tenure. So our family had the luxury when we were looking for rental housing to make a decision between, do we want to rent from someone who's bought a house 
and rent that house or uh, do we want to rent from someone who's bought a condo and rent that condo or do we want to rent uh, from a, a professional landlord in purpose-built rental housing and so we ended up living out at UBC in their market rental housing that they have uh, because of that security of tenure that that brought and so that's why it's not ideal it's not a good government housing policy it shouldn't be the intent of government to rely on that but at the same time it's really hard to criticize because uh, people are desperate for rental housing and uh, it's better than and we actually have a tax that encourages people when they own condos like this to rent them out and so we know that 18,000 empty condos and homes were brought into the rental pool through that tax and that's not insignificant that's a significant response in a rental housing crisis but our focus is to not uh, encourage that our focus is to encourage the construction of purpose-built rental housing uh, and more affordable uh, forms of uh, of home ownership than to encourage that kind of investment I have a question here David that came out and I this is not a this is not the best form question in my head yet sure. so I'm gonna give it a shot okay yeah. so Heather Tremaine on the show talked about how you know we are living in a North America a financial system here in North America that really does push people to buy homes for their retirement because then you have something that you can sell off and downsize and then you have retirement money to live on and this is not the case um you know, in people talk about Austria, where Austria, where lots of people rent, but they also have you know, pensions and more social supports than we do here in BC. So here, like it really does make financial sense to, or in many ways, it makes more financial sense to buy rather than to rent. You know, I think there was a question there for me of like, what are changes? We're like, are we making changes within that specific financial system? Or are we making changes to change that financial system as a whole? So what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, the, the system is one that strongly encourages uh, people to buy a home. And there, there are lots of uh, important reasons for government policy to have evolved that way. Um, and the main and the primary tax benefit of being a homeowner is the primary resident capital gains tax exemption. This is where the appreciation of the value of your, your home, your residence, is exempt from capital gains tax, which is a, a significant federal tax. And that exemption is a federal exemption. And, uh, and you've seen government of every stripe uh, at the federal level, and none of them are going to change that because it is, uh, it's a cornerstone uh, for many families across Canada. And so that's profoundly unlikely to change. The, the challenge has been to recognize that um, lots of, uh, and, and it's generational, you know, lots of people are happy renting. They like renting for various reasons. They like the lifestyle that that allows in terms of commitment to a particular place and, uh, and how they work and how they like to live. Um, and there's not a matching commitment from government to support renters in that same way. And also, um, many people have no choice but to rent because they can't get a down payment together for the, uh, for the inflated real estate market that we face, uh, not just in British Columbia, but across North America. And so I personally, as housing minister, you know, I think, uh, and in, in conversations with my uh, colleagues, certainly the Minister of Finance, we understand why, and we support uh, uh, getting more people into the opportunity to buy and to own their own home if they choose to do that. Um, but we also recognize that people who will be renting uh, need to have uh, more fair treatment in terms of tax benefits. That's why in the last election, we committed to the, there's a, an allowance, a provincial allowance around property tax for homeowners, uh, that there should be something equivalent for renters. 
And, uh, and so the finance minister is doing the work on that and we've committed to that and we'll deliver that. Uh, and it's just part of a recognition about how people are living now and that tax policy hasn't really kept up in the same way. I'm going to switch gears, Dave, and I'm going to ask, what can an average person do about the housing crisis in Metro Vancouver? Yeah, the biggest thing that any person, individual can do around housing in Metro is when they see one of those signs go up in their neighborhood that says, uh, we're proposing on this site to build a, a 30-story tower or six townhomes or uh, a duplex or whatever, and we're taking comments at the city about that. To take the second and write an email, or uh, if they're super keen, to zoom into the public hearing and say, please build this housing, please approve it as quickly as possible. I don't understand why uh, this would require a special rezoning uh, to build townhomes in this area uh, and be an advocate for more housing in the community um, because uh, that is so desperately needed. And it's all kinds of housing. Uh, it's not one particular type. But predominantly, I lie awake uh, worrying about the shortage of rental housing, but it's all kinds of housing um, across Metro that we need. So uh, people who are willing to support and advocate for that go a long way with city councils for them to hear. Yeah, yeah, I support and I want to see more neighbors. I, I think it's a positive thing. And my last question for you, Dave, is, I guess, two last questions. So the first question is a little bit of life advice from Dave. You know, do you think I should stay in Metro Vancouver and deal with that affordability? Or should I just like say, you know, pack it up and leave? And I guess the second question for you, me around that that's linked is, um, I think you have kids, Dave. I do too, yeah. Do you, you know, like given all that, like would you tell them to stay in BC? or Metro Vancouver, or would you tell them to leave? Yeah, so I have trouble telling my kids. They're, they're two and seven to <laughs> do anything and have them listen to me. In fact, if I want them to do something, I have to say the opposite. Um, so it's just a, a psycho psychology thing, that, <laughs> that experiment that our family is running. Um, so I'll, I'll choose something easier, which is to tell you what to do, Jenny. I 100% uh, think you should stay. And, and I think you should stay for a couple of reasons. One is um, one of the things that I tell people in politics who are thinking about getting involved in politics and so on um, is, you know, if you don't and they're like, oh, politics is so toxic. And like, I don't know if I want to say, listen, if you don't go, you know, if you're not if you don't run, then someone else will. And they may not be as concerned about changing things. They may not be as interested in changing the culture of things. They may not be as interested as you are. And that will perpetuate the issue. And it's the same for you and your question. It's not about politics, but it's about your question about housing. Like we need people to advocate for change around this in British Columbia. And you through this podcast and the work that you're doing and bringing these voices to the table is exactly what needs to happen on housing. And so if we lost a voice like you and the work that you're doing on housing here, um, then that's an irretrievable loss. And, and you know, like I do, I'm sure you've lost friends um, to other provinces and, and other places because of housing and because of affordability and so on. You know that those voices aren't necessarily replaced. And so we, I think that we are uh, turning a corner on a bunch of levels. I think there is a changing public discourse around the need for more housing. I think that there is a changing public understanding of the need for government investment in housing. The federal government for the first budget in generations has done a housing budget. There's a change at the municipal level around understanding of their role around ensuring housing affordability and livability and walkable communities and all these things. I think we are at the darkest 
point in terms of housing and we're turning a corner. But the only way we keep the momentum is if the people who are committed to this issue, like stay involved and stay in the community and keep pushing. And I know it's very difficult. And I, uh, you know, I've been advocating on housing issues since I first became a baby lawyer a million years ago. And, uh, and it's a long fight. And, uh, but I really think we're making progress. So I want you to stay. I want your voice at the table uh, around housing issues. And, um, and it's the same reason I tell people to stay involved in politics. It's the same reason I tell people to stay in, they, they're in a job and they're like, you know, my voice isn't being heard. I think I should quit. Is say if you if you can you know stick it out and 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 do what you can to make your voice heard and uh, I think you're having a big influence so I hope you stay. Thank you so much, Dave. I thank you for that little piece of hope at the end. I hope I can afford to stay. I hope the people in my life and everyone else around here can afford to stay. And thank you for this chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And now, let's break down those ideas with architect Bruce Hayden. Bruce, I just talked to the housing minister for 45 minutes. That's very exciting, Jenny. And I thought it was a lovely interview. It's kind of fun, actually. Hold on a second. I'm just going to do deep breaths. I have this like celebrity moment going on where I feel like... <laughs> Don't re- let it go to your head, Jenny. You're just rolling your eyes at me. Okay, okay. I am rolling my eyes. <laughs> You're waving yourself and drinking cocktails and like, come on. Okay, I'm drink- drinking a bubbly, not a cocktail, no day drinking. Thank you very much on the job. But okay. Okay, what do we think about that? David said a bunch of things that I think are important and I think we should build on a few of them. Uh, one is a phrase that I'll absolutely steal in future, which is he talked about how real estate eats everything in our culture. And it's really true. It affects relationships. It obviously affects finances. But it it affects so many things. It becomes what I think of as kind of the black hole where all the light that goes in, comes, comes in, gets sucked into the black hole of real estate. And it means that there's so little light on other really important issues like the arts, for example. Um, so, I, I, I liked that insight and that kind of insight in my mind is actually a kind of unusual for a politician. I think it's like, you know, you and I just talked about this right before we recorded, which is that, you know, whenever we get together friends, inevitably, we talk about real estate. It's like, hey, how's it going? How's your life? Blah, blah, blah. How's work? How's all the other stuff? And then it's like, oh my gosh, house prices are so expensive. Did you see that house go for like one point whatever, right? Like, it's such a waste of time. It's it's kind of like an addiction, isn't it? It's it sort is of like actually, yeah, it's an yeah, addiction. Yeah. It's like oh yeah, we have to get together and like you know, um, drink alcohol and and uh, and talk about real estate. And and like any addiction, addictions have their prices. So I want to talk about something else he touched on, which is this idea about renters and homeowners and tax benefits. You know, tax benefits are not the sexiest thing to talk about all the time, but like actually, it's quite important in how people can live out their financial lives. It's absolutely critical. And, and to me, it, it comes down to something that David didn't say, but I've always passionately believed is that the way we talk about the difference between homeowners and renters in our culture is often has a huge status and kind of classist association with it. We tend to, the language we use around homeowners tends to assume that they're 
um, that there's a higher degree of moral superiority to some extent. And it's often quite nuanced. But I even, we've even talked, I think, about the term single family home that has actually a very, very strong kind of cultural connotation if you think about it. And we often talk about needing to protect single family homeowners. We rarely talk about having to protect renters, although that conversation, which is new, is really starting to come to the fore, which is very positive. But to actually level the playing field between renting and home ownership would be an extraordinary win. I, he wasn't specific about exactly how they're planning to do that, but that would actually be, I think, a, a very positive step. The other thing that he talked about is like this, like resort resortification, right? And economy versus the other type of economy. And I thought that was interesting here, and because it's like, you know, we see that where there are places in the world that have become the playgrounds for rich people. I appreciated his framing of like stepping back and saying like, ultimately, it is one of the choices we're making here is do we want Vancouver to be a Disneyland kind of economy? Or do you want Vancouver to be a place um, where people come and then they can work and play at the same time and like live regular people lives? I lived briefly in Toronto before I moved out to Vancouver many years ago now. Uh, and I always make the joke that in, in Toronto, for example, it's very important to be seen to be working hard even if you're not. And in Vancouver, it's important to be seen to be not working hard even if you are. But in general, people don't move to Toronto re to retire. They move there because this is that is the kind of the, the pulsating entrepreneurial heart of Canada. And people move to Vancouver because it's beautiful. Again, I'm overly simplifying, of course. But I do think what David was very effective in is saying that the entrepreneurial economy and energy here is underserved and really underserved by a restricted housing market. So, he spoke very specifically about people, businesses that want to hire people and can't find um, people that can afford to live here. So, that has an inflationary effect on, on, on business costs as an example. So, this is a really key cultural choice. Do we want to be an entrepreneurial place or do we want to be a place where wealthy people who've made their money elsewhere want to retire? And I really appreciate that he was very clearly on the entrepreneurial side which I think is a more interesting, vibrant, and dynamic future for this region, absolutely. And I think there's like, there's some nuance to that where we can be this place where, like, this can be a place where you can start a business and work hard, you know, or come here to like m make regular money, maybe not like exceptional, like blow your socks off money, but mm. just like generally come and live a regular, regular person life, right? And one of the things that he identified as absolutely central to that, which is something that I agree with, is government's active government support for more housing. So the federal government building more housing and 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 we shouldn't be ashamed of saying that. That this is actually part of the critical goal. And that is something that happens very frequently at a large scale in Europe. So maybe I want to wrap up with this. Well, I know if we're gonna wrap up, I get to ask you the last question then, because this is how we work sometimes in this show. What, so, when you boss me around and I get grumpy? Uh, well, I don't think you get too grumpy. And mostly, mostly, mostly you're the boss. I'm just, I'm your loyal slave. You know that. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, what's yeah, the okay. question? Um, you, you ended the conversation with David on, on the issue of hope. How do you feel about uh, at the end of that? Uh, do, you, do you have a sense of enhanced hope? They really tried to sell me hard on this idea of hope. I, I mean, I think he believes it. Um, I think the I think the um, honest answer is, I don't know. You know, I think that he talked about 
you know, you know he, like no one can give this answer, right? Of like this $2 million home, like is it going to come down in a price? It's kind of hard to ask anyone for specifics on that. Um, but I mean, I really, you know, for something like that to come down significantly in price, like that's like some sort of like national or global, like hugely significant incident at homes, like maybe a catastrophe or a crisis that brings prices down that much. Like, and I think it was like yet another reminder that like many ships have sailed and it's not like active government intervention is not going to get us to a place probably very, very, very unlikely to a place where home prices were what they were 20 years ago, right? But, but, like, does that mean I can't afford to live here? What he said, I can't remember his specific words, like that we sort of have turned the darkest corner and that we're going to get better. But I don't actually know what it looks like. Better for good enough? Well, some of what what I think is really critical to this is it's absolutely clear in this region, we are not going to go back to an era of $500,000 single family houses. That will not happen. But some of that is that we've we've chosen to define a single family house as a uh, as the pinnacle of success. So the critical question, and we've talked about this a bunch in this podcast for you, I think, is is can you build a great life here? And a great life here doesn't necessarily mean a fantasy life, which is exactly the way, for example, that your parents chose to live. Um, but it can be all sorts of different things that might be incredibly satisfying. And some of it may be to set aside the fantasy of a single family house and look at the things that we can do and to try to bring those two things together. And I'm not saying that's only up to you to lower your expectations, but there is that reality about how how we choose to live as an urban region will be different than how we've chosen to live as an urban region in the past. Maybe. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think being too blase, I appreciate that, Bruce. I appreciate your description and you're talking through of what you of what you see as possible for a great life here. And I think that the I think the answer is maybe. Maybe like maybe I have hope. Question mark. At least it's not no. At least it's not no. All right. I think it's a wrap. And that was David Eby. Dave's the minister responsible for housing in BC. He's also the attorney general and the MLA for Vancouver Point Grey. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our bonus episode. Make sure to hit subscribe so you know when we drop our next episode. And tell us what you think. Email us at citytalk at urbanarium.org. That's citytalk at u-r-b-a-n-a-r-i-u-m.org. I read every email. And thanks so much to our editorial advisor, Urbanarium board member and processing buddy, Bruce Hayden. Our production team is self-hired. Special thanks to Suman Candola. The music was composed by Yute Lee. Will Jackson designed our podcast art. I'm Jenny Tan, and you're listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Ciao!